Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. The Cardboard Box by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Holmes and Watson are sitting in their rooms at 221B Baker Street in August. It's an incredibly hot day, although it seems it's fine for Watson because he's an old soldier in India and Afghanistan. For some reason, uh, Holmes is quite uncommunicative, so much so that Watson doesn't even bother trying to speak to him. It's a very silent uh, drawing room at 221B. Watson falls into what he calls a brown study, it's a sort of empty, vacuous state of mind, when Watson, when Holmes suddenly says out the blue, you're right, Watson, it is a ridiculous way to solve a, a, dis, a, a dispute. Uh, and Watson says, yeah, I completely agree, it really is preposterous. And then, of course, he's stunned because we, they, they weren't actually having a conversation. It's, it looks as if um, Holmes has just read his mind. Holmes <laughs> laughs at the incredulity that Watson shows and describes how he's basically read his thoughts. It's to do with... Um, he was looking at a painting of the wall of Beecher. Watson, when he was looking at it, he, he suddenly his eyes flashed and his, he was clenching his fists and he was thinking about the um, the gallantry uh, shown by both sides of, of the war. And then he shook his head with a little smile as if to say, what a stupid way to organ, you know, to, 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 to fight, uh, you know. And uh, at that point, uh, Holmes jumps in. This whole scene is repeated in the, the resident patients. We're going to get on to why that is in the show, about why... The cardboard box was originally actually um, suppressed by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when it was first uh, um, uh, published. Um, so we'll get on to that. But more importantly, let's get on with the story. So they get uh, Watson is shown a telegram from Lestrade to say that uh, a Miss Susan Cushing, who lives in Croydon, um, has been sent a cardboard box by parcel post from Belfast and it contains two severed human ears. Obviously, Miss Cushing is completely shocked by this, and she has had absolutely no idea who she sent them. Um, there's talk of medical students who played some sort of vile prank on her or something like that, and Lestrade is very much of that opinion as well. So um, the do- Holmes and the doctor run down to Croydon, uh, to Cross Street, and um, and examine... Firstly, they examine um, <laughs> Mrs Cushing uh, herself, and then they look at the ears. Holmes determines straight away that they're not uh, a pair. Two people um, have been killed... And he says killed because they are not from the medical, you know, they're not from the dissection lab because they don't smell of, you know, um, of, of you know, fluid or anything like that, so, you know, preservative fluid or anything like that. Instead, they're actually held in, uh, in rough, coarse salt, I think you could call it. Holmes also notes that on the actual, the, the, the package itself is interesting. For a start, it's sent to Croydon, and Croydon has been misspelled originally with an I and then crossed out and replaced with the Y, which, of course, is the correct spelling. Also, that 
he's been a bit fortunate because Miss uh, Sarah Cushing um cut the cut the um the, the knot around the knot rather cutting the knot itself so he actually gets to examine the knot which becomes obviously a big point later on um they have a look at it and um Holmes and Watson go to see go back into the house to sort to speak to uh Susan Cushing and Holmes solves the case there and then it's all done he just needs he knows who um what's happened he knows why she's been sent the ears but of course he just needs more information about how and when he doesn't have the name but he solved this by basically by sitting next to her and looking at her ear he determines then that the ear is actually very very similar to uh like the 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 dissected ear is because it's a man and a woman's uh the woman's ear is very very similar to uh miss cushing's own ear and um a quick look around the room and he sees that there's three sisters uh in the in the um in a photo um who look pretty much exactly like her he asks them um she says this is my sister sarah so of course that's s cushing as she is so there straight away holmes determines that you know this is actually for s for sarah not for susan and uh, and Mary, who's the youngest daughter, Holmes looks around further and sees a picture of the youngest daughter, Mary, youngest sister, I should say, and asks about the man she's with, who's a steward. She explains that uh, Mary married a man called Jim Browner. He was actually on the South American lines, but couldn't bear to leave his new wife, so he's on the Liverpool to uh, London lines uh, at the moment after they got married. Holmes determines pretty much immediately from that that he's a, that this James Browner is a. Uh, a creature of you know flight of fancy he decides straight away no i don't want a, the better job i just want to be staying stay there my wife he asked you know how they're getting on and um um susan cushing said well um actually there's been a bit of a, an argument sam um, sarah and susan used to live together in croydon but they only a few weeks earlier they um sarah left because they're just she's very meddlesome and gets in the way of people um and she'd actually gone to liverpool to stay with um to stay with mary what she doesn't know is the fact that Mary, and uh, we determine, we find out later on that Mary had also um, had an argument with her husband Jim Browner. Holmes works this out pretty much immediately and goes back to Baker Street and says it's all done. He he gets a telegram uh, before he does that and he meets Lestrade and he just writes the name of the murderer Jim Browner onto a onto a piece of card and just says just send me the details when it's all done. He's just so pleased with himself. It's a it's a really really simple case for him. Jim Brown is arrested in London the next day off the May Day. Um, according to the crew, he'd been sitting looking morose with his head in his hands, and. Lestrade gives Holmes a copy of the statement through the post and and uh, Jim Browner's story is told and uh, it's pretty much as it had been imagined. Uh, Jim Browner was a heavy drinker. He wore the blue ribboned with pride. Blue ribbon with pride. And um, not ribboned, that's a biscuit. <laughs> the blue ribbon was a biscuit in the 70s. The blue ribbon, um, as a non-drinker, because he was just besotted with his new wife, then Sarah came up and stayed with them, and one day Sarah pretty much made a pass for him, and then Sarah really started to hate him as of that moment. He said from that rejection onwards, that it's um, you, you know she knew she could hate, it. and slowly but surely, Sarah starts tearing Mary's mind against him, saying, "I don't want to be in the same room as him. He looks dangerous to me because he's a former drinker." And of course, Jim does start to drink again. Sarah then introduces Mary to a friend of hers called Alec Furburn, and it's suggested that he. Um, Fairbairn is a sailor, but he knows he's. Um, Browner says later on that he, he's he's definitely more home to the officers' mess than he is to um to the crew. Alec Fairbairn gets on very very well, shall we say, with Mary, and obviously there's an affair going on. 
one day Jim Browner comes home from sea early because there's there's, there's um uh, a sort of hog's head has been split or something. I don't quite understand that. Uh, but he stays back, stays back, and he goes back to see his wife. And his wife isn't there. She gets into a taxi, uh, a cab, sorry, with um, with Alec Furburn. Jim Browner goes nuts, but he's not quite nuts enough where he confronts him on the spot. He follows them to New Brighton, which we'll talk about where New Brighton is, um, and watches them have a day out on the uh, on the seafront of the River Mersey. Um, they get a, they hire a boat. Brano gets hires a boat as well and stays until they're in a little haze, and he kills them both with the oar of his boat. He ties the bodies together and sinks it. But before he does that, he cuts off their an ear each. He does this because he said to Sarah when he was saying, "I don't want Alec Furbin in the house." He said, "One day I'm going." He said, "I'll kill him and I'll cut off one of his ears and send it to you as a keepsake." The most interesting thing about this is Browner is genuine and devastated what he's done. He says he doesn't care if he's hung because what because his own conscience is killing him every, every second of every day. You know he's, he he lives with the guilt. And the story ends with Holmes asking Watson, "What is the point of this violence? What is its end?" And that's the cardboard box. Our guest this week to discuss the cardboard box are Marissa and Sarah from the However Improbable podcast. If you don't know the show, and I suggest you give it a try because it's absolutely brilliant, it really is. Um, it's an unusual show because they do similar things to what we do here on Adler to Ambly, but they look at the stories chronologically rather than by publication date. We'll have a chat about that. Um, and it, they go through the, the entire 30 years friendship between the two, all the way from a study in Scarlet through to their retirement. Um, every other week they present a fresh recording of the adventures and they delve into... The story itself, the history and politics, the adaptations, uh, and just why they're so captivated by the detective and his good doctor. Oh, Holmes famously said that there was nothing new under the sun, but Marissa and Sarah are more than willing to give him a run for his money. Marissa is Marissa Mercurio. Um, she's a Michigan-based writer and scholar of gender, sexuality and empire in 19th century British literature, uh, with a special emphasis on gothic and detective fiction. When she's not researching dashing women solving mysteries for her PhD, she's a jack-of-all-trades artist with a poncho of the horror, hiking and gardening. While Sarah is Sarah Kolb, she's a Colorado-based writer, podcaster and arts marketer with a passion for unconventional storytelling, detective stories and rude women. We like that. During the day, she's a professional advocate for the regional theatre, art education and gender parity in the arts. She likes murder mysteries, don't we all, horror stories, long hiking trails, local beer, we'll have a chat about that, and lamenting her anguish online. She says, yes, that she did almost kill someone with a squash once. We're definitely going to be talking about that. Um, in addition to However Improbable, she's the writer and creator of A Superstition, a southwestern gothic audio mystery. So, uh, Marissa, thank you so much for coming on to the show to discuss the cardboard box. Um, we've done, already done the plot recap. We've just done your... Um, uh, <laughs> we've gone through your collective CVs. Um, I really want to talk about However Improbable. <laughs> Yeah, I've got to, I've so got to talk about the, the spaghetti squash first. Oh, God. Sarah, what, okay. how have you nearly killed somebody with what is strictly speaking veg? Yeah, so this is it's because it's on the website. Um, it's like my one fun fact about myself is that I ha- did almost murder my college roommate with a spaghetti squash. And so this was I was living in a weird little apartment in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I got a, a, a CSA, so a community supported agriculture share, which is a, like a bunch of vegetables that are cooked or that are grown by a local farm. And in Northern Arizona, that's sometimes a bit of an interesting experiment once you get. And I got this basketball sized spaghetti squash. I'm also a vegetarian, so I don't eat meat. So I'm like, I got to figure out how to like 
approach cooking this thing because everyone says it's something that you do. Um, I think I was about 20 in this story. Uh, and it was, so, it was so <laughs> big. Well, it, it is a defense in that I had never cooked a spaghetti squash in my okay. own, and More I didn't know what to do with this. And it was massive, like unusually large and round and orange. Um, and it was so big, I couldn't cut it in half. It was too large to chop. So I put it in a boiling, in my genius, I'm like, oh, I can boil it until it's soft and then I'll be able to cut it up and then it's going to be great. And so I put it in a giant pot of water and set it to boil and then I fell asleep. Oh no. And so I found out the hard way that when you put a large semi-hollow round object in a boiling pot of water for like an hour, it builds up steam on the inside and then when your roommate oh. comes home and walks into the kitchen, it launches itself out of the pot like a gourd projectile. So wow. it almost blew her face off. It like splattered all over the ceiling. And if I ever am in the position to form an indie band, the band's name is Squash Bomb Homicide. That's excellent. That's the we're, story. We're all busy for, to come to dinner for yours after lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> you know, understandable. Since then, and for years I had like a, you know, I'm never going to cook these again because this was so, it was kind of scarring. Um, Over quarantine, I actually did buy and successfully cook spaghetti squash without killing anybody. So, congratulations. I'm not trusting you. There you go. Yeah. We had to, um, uh, I've got a parallel story. There's a friend of mine, um, Keith, um, back home in Liverpool, who um, puts, you know, like the miniature Christmas puddings. Um, you put them in the microwave for about 90 seconds. And um, he, came, he came home from work very, very tight. Like they're really, really small, really, really small crisp puddings. He put it in and it said like one minute 30 inside the microwave and then went to sleep outside, which is all there really fine. It would just go cold again, except he put one hour 30. Oh, no. Broken <laughs> by the fire brigade. Uh-huh. Um, oh I can't God. believe he chose to tell all of us that story. When he could That's, really yeah, that. impressive. That's dangerous. So, yeah. Lucky. Every time I think about Chris Pudding now, I think about Keith's kitchen being on fire. <laughs> smoke all over the place. Um, uh, we'll move on to, uh, however improbable, Marissa. Yes. Um, we're doing similar things, aren't we? But you're doing it in, in probably a much a much more creative way than, than John and I do it here because you're doing the, the stories by uh, chronological order rather than... Uh, rather than we're doing it by publication although we are coming on to why this is a weird one today why we're doing cardboard box now and not much later on um how difficult is that well I think both first off I think both approaches have their merit because we have definitely run into some issues with the dating which is because Conan Doyle is so famously inconsistent yes his dates and his details and we have largely using yeah everything (laughs) there's no consistency whatsoever and so we have been largely using Baring Gould's chronology okay and then altering it somewhat if we have slight disagreements with it or more likely we've had two stories or we will have two stories pretty soon in which they take place before Holmes and Watson meet and so those were more up to Those us great where we wanted to place them. Yeah, because the framework of them is Holmes telling Watson about the story. So technically yeah. they take place in, say, 1887 or so. But then the story that Holmes is telling Watson takes place, you know, 10 years or more yeah. before. So we've been able to 
alter things a little bit to our liking, which has been nice, but it's been a little bit of a struggle because there are so many inconsistencies. In the last story, Watson, I think, mentioned his marriage coming up in a couple weeks, and we're only in 1886, which means yeah. that Watson yeah. still has a couple more years before he He's, like, married. predicting the future. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I so think Watson we're going to have a visitor good. soon, Holmes. And I yeah. think I might fall for her. <laughs> it's going so, to be a bit of that. Right. Watson himself is not very good with dates either. Yeah. And we've also sort of, we've noted that Watson often intentionally obfuscates dates, which makes things even more hard yeah. to follow yeah. chronologically. Yeah. John, I can't wait till we do um, the Musgrave ritual. You, you're, you can do Watson watch that week <laughs> when we do that. Because literally, literally all he does is sit in a chair and listen. Right. That's yeah. every single well, thing he does. Podcast, basically, isn't it? And just yeah. A question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, does Watson do much in this one? No, <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so, so, so obviously, some of the stories are quite easy to put together. I'm thinking, obviously, the empty house. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, sorry, the final problem. Then the empty house, things like that. That'd be quite an easy one to do. Um, it can't be helped by the fact that there are... Are you including the novels as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. How are you getting past the two Moriartys? Because <laughs> Watson's well, never heard of him in Valley of Fear, even right. though he killed his mate. Yeah. I think, you know, I think we're going to get there when we get yeah. there. We have, like, 15 years <laughs> in their timeline <laughs> yeah, before we get true, to the yeah. final problem yeah. anyway. We're in 1886. Um, but it's one of those, like, when we talk about it, you just have to talk about, like these were published in a totally random order and yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle sort of like retconning to make things make more sense sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, it's part of the journey. A sort of burn that bridge when we get to it mentality. And then also just talking about it when we get to it, just acknowledging yeah. the inconsistencies and okay. saying, well, no, we decided that, that sounds, to do this. That sounds fun to me, to be honest. It's funny. Yeah, and it's been yeah. quite enjoyable to follow things chronologically because at the end of it, even despite all the inconsistencies, there is some sense of time lapse and development between characters' relationships. Do you think that's purely accidental? Possibly. <laughs> it's got to be, it's I It's hard think. to say. It's interesting yeah. because so much of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, obviously Conan Doyle's canon is the groundwork on which everything is laid, but the you know massive afterlife of Sherlock Holmes is so difficult to separate in our minds. And so I think we are yeah. just building layers upon layers upon layers. And so when we do see these consistencies or when we do see this development in character arcs or relationships, it's not just Conan Doyle that we're thinking through, but everything that's come after him as well. And it's yeah. sort of difficult to untangle, you know, all the various layers of Sherlock Holmes that have come after the 1920s. So you're saying it's up, uh, uh, the last one must be, uh, I imagine, his last bow? Be the last story? Yes, I think, I think so. so. Yeah. I'll think of one I'll later. Have to go than... back and look, but... Yeah, that sounds yeah right. we have, like... Yes, it is. I mean, we have, you know, it's essentially, like, the next two and a half years of our lives um, charted out in order. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I'm pretty sure. So have we. <laughs> right. <laughs> In fact, I read with some alarm today that uh, we did the five orange pips, which only seems about six episodes ago, a year ago today. Wow. Which is, which is oh. quite mad. Mm-hmm. 
really. So where are you now into the canon then? Whereabouts? Which, which, which uh, stories are you between? So the one, I think it's actually the date we're recording this anyway, will be next week is going to come out is The Adventure of the Second Stain. Okay. Um, which in, in terms of stories that don't have a definitive date or time, that was one that we kind of just, I was kind of like, I like it early in their relationship and it makes sense. So that's just where we're doing it. Um, yeah, so that's next. And then we're doing the Musgrave Ritual, mm-hmm. um, which again, could have gone anywhere, but I like yeah. getting that backstory kind of before you're too far into their friendship. Yeah, that was a main, that was a major decision for us to put mm-hmm. those stories in order to, for us to get Holmes's backstory before we got too far into the actual timeline. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just full of questions now. Where, where, where would um, where would the Abbey Grange be? <laughs> Things like that. Um, that one's much later on. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, it's good yeah. to be. Where have but, you put um, Watson's second marriage? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we haven't yeah. even gotten to the first marriage yet. <laughs> no, no, you I don't think Watson knows where to put his second marriage. No, no. he's just suddenly married, isn't he? Not, yeah, not entirely married, convinced that second married, marriage is real. Yeah. That second marriage is so interesting because, like Sarah said, like, is it real? Is it not real? Is yeah. it a weird what inconsistency? What is going on here? Did it happen before Mary? Did it happen after Mary? It's it's very odd, and I've seen all sorts of ways for people to justify it, and it I don't know. It's always it's never quite convincing. I'm I'm just glad. I mean, obviously, I I love Sir Arthur, but um, I'm just glad that he remembered that Mary dies and she doesn't right. just come back in again just because of or Mary. I know she pops uh, up again. Hey, yeah, yeah. zombie hey, Mary. Surprise. It's 10 years after I died, and here yeah. I am. Um, but there's a bit but her mom that. comes back to life. Yes. So. <laughs> Can I just say, good, best of luck. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so complicated that. family drama there. Because I think even he would struggle, and he wrote them. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think right. there's, a, there's a great deal of that. Um, Marissa, uh, how did you begin your Sherlock adoration? Oh, gosh. Um, so I've always loved... 19th century literature. It's actually what I study on my sort of day-to-day um, day job. And so I, I started reading, I guess, Victorian literature when I was in middle school, so around 13 or 14. And I really didn't get into Sherlock Holmes until I was maybe 16 or 17. And this is almost a little bit embarrassing, but it's because that's when the Richie Holmes movies came out with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Okay. I just had not read the stories yet. I hadn't gotten around to them. And I enjoyed the movie and it just led me to buying the full volumes of the series and just barreling through them. I have a very vivid memory of carrying, you know, the, they were in two volumes that I had and they were, you know, five pounds a piece, basically. And I have a very vivid memory of carrying them on top of my chemistry book from class to class in high school and just reading in between, um, you know, halls and in the five minutes I could get before class started. And so I I finished them all by the end of high school. And then by the time I got to college, I was really full in it and started reading pastiches because I was out of canon material. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, that's when. Um, that, actually, that was another question I was going to ask you. Are you going to be doing the unpublished stories as well? 
Yes. You're, you're, you're getting onto the cormorants and the lighthouse. lighthouse. We are going to, oh, Sarah, what, I don't know. Um, well, we're, we're going to talk about some pastiches in the future, not in the same way that we're doing the chronology. And so we're not. Because there is no story. To, that's just a title at some point, yeah. Right. We're not trying mm. to like place them in the same way that the canon stories are, but we've been doing these little case file episodes, which we plan to do more of, in which we talk about different adaptations or particular topics of things that aren't within the Arthur Doyle canon. Um, and so we're going to be talking about some of our favorite pastiches along the way. I think we may have to do the same, John, to be honest. Because I, th- I don't think we can let the, the, the giant Ratu Sumatra go by. <laughs> They're really fun. Yeah. yeah. They're just I mean, fun. it's just such a broad, like, whatever you like about the stories, there's going to be a pastiche that yeah. does mm-hmm. it somewhere. You just have to find it. I'm just thinking the Abergavenny murder one that uh, on the uh, the Bert Cools uh, version. Yeah, yeah, is... I, I love Bert Cools adaptations. Uh, we, we've been told by Bert to not talk quite so much about him and get on with the story. <laughs> Occasion. That's literally what he said to us. He said because after uh, it was Kyle, wasn't it? When Kyle was on, he said, "Yeah, I loved it. Thanks very much. I was very, very flattered." But at some point, you're going to have to go on to start talking about not the program at all. But yes, uh, that's funny. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know, they're good. Let's just continue. <laughs> exactly, yeah, he's more interested in the story. What, what about <laughs> you, Sarah? Bingo card. Sorry? A bingo card. Yeah. You know, every episode when we mention Bert Cools and we mention... <laughs> I want Bert to come and present with me as well, just so I can ask him questions all day. And sorry, sorry, Bert, we'll, go, we'll get on with the story. So uh, what about uh, your, your Sherlock upbringing? So I, you know, it's sort of similar, I think, where you get introduced to one sort of, genre of literature and it leads you towards Sherlock Holmes in one way or another but for me it was detective fiction as a little kid with stuff like Nancy Drew um and I I mean I was probably in middle school I don't I don't have like a specific memory of exactly when I picked them up but I was a voracious reader of everything and so I think that you know Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys are sort of like naturally gonna take you to sort of the blueprint for that stuff um yeah I don't know and then you know, it's just like my interest just sort of like peaked and waned over time. Um, and you're you're going to get to him eventually, though, aren't you? I mean, you can't do you can't be into detective fiction and ignore the big one. Exactly. Yeah. Like yes. you're gonna. And I really love noir fiction and I really love scrappy female detectives, you know. And so it's like inevitably like I binge, binge watched Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries a couple of years ago. And then you okay. like get that itch and it's like, well, I guess I'll go reread Sherlock Holmes again yeah. <laughs> um, or like whatever it is. And so. Um, and then, of course, like whenever a new interesting adaptation comes out, you watch the adaptation and then it's like, well, I just want to go back to the source. Um, so I, I've been in, you know, like a couple decade long roller coaster love hate affair with it. Yeah, we always come <laughs> back to it, don't you? I'm, I'm the same, mm-hmm. to be honest. There's always a, every time I, you know, when the, the BBC stories came out and I, I could, you know, I could recognize the odd reference, but I just thought, um, I think I'll just go back and check what that is. And then suddenly you're reading five stories a night. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, John, I was thinking about the about the, the, Nancy, the Nancy boy and sorry, Nancy, Nancy Drew and Hardy boys. The Nancy boys, I think that's Nancy that's boy and Hardy Drew. Yeah, we might have graded that out. <laughs> yeah, let's, 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 yeah, yeah, that's cancelled. Um, yeah. did, did you ever read the Three Investigators stories? Three I think that was the equivalent of that sort of thing. Well, the UK equivalent. Yeah, I, well, I, it's, it's, it's actually American, but it was. Um, okay. So if, if, if anyone doesn't know, so basically the, the three investigators were three 
lads who were about 15, Jupiter Jones, who was a child genius, his, um, uh, his, um, his best friend, Pete Crenshaw, I want to say, who was very athletic and very good at action. And, uh, and the third one was called Bob Andrews, who basically was like a PA to them. And they had an office in the... Um, please, please read this up. I'm not making this up, honestly. They, they, there's an abandoned trailer on uh, Jupiter's um, Uncle Titus's scrapyard, which for oh, some God. reason had a workable phone so they could ring people. And what they do, they would solve problems and solve issues, which is all fine. And then they go and see Alfred Hitchcock and talk about them. Oh. <laughs> They're called Alfred Hitchcock, and I would, this is great. Okay, I get to talk about this on Twitter. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were the equivalent for me. I went from homes from sort of from that as well. And um, uh, I think there was about maybe 25 novels or something like that. And I read every single one by the time I was nine. See, it sounds far more interesting than me reading the famous five and secret seven and, you know, going from, uh, well, I think that was the next step because my sister was into the secret seven and the famous five and I wasn't having any of that because I just didn't like ginger ale. So I couldn't get involved <laughs> with, uh, I was really going to say the other, the other famous group of mystery solvers I left out is obviously Scooby-Doo. Oh, oh yeah. formative. Yeah. <laughs> All based on true stories. Every single. I mean, day. yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't. I, I didn't know for ages that um, the voice of Shaggy was Casey Kellen. I had no <laughs> idea of that. Who do, in the later, I don't know if you remember. Oh, no, John, I remember when John was born. Forget that. Um, <laughs> he used to present like America's Top Ten, and uh, oh. he, was, he was the voice for. Um, oh God, Shaggy. Yeah, I think think most of them, and he was just like a, a standard sort of. Um, late 80s American presenter sort of middle age with a nice big v-neck jumper on and ironed <laughs> hair <laughs> oh funny Shaggy's great you look like you've just walked off a golf course going on here we will Boy, be exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. voice Shaggy from 1969 to 1997 and then 2002 to 2009 apparently wow. he went back to do it as well even yeah, though he was a, a golf player at that point <laughs> wow I think Matthew Lillard, who played this is like Scooby Doo Corner, but Matthew Lillard, who played Shaggy in the live action movie, I think voiced him for quite a while after that. Yeah, I think you're right. Did, did you and also Matthew know Lillard's that? Great. Yeah, he did is. you also know that that Scooby is one of triplets? There is a Scooby Doo timeline. I'm sure. I mean, there's yeah. like the Scooby Doo extended universe, and, he, and he's he's quite well to do. Like his his parents who are very very posh live in a big mansion. His dog parents, yeah, have dog money. I saw the idea of someone just winding past the intro to listen to the cardboard box, and then we're suddenly talking about the uh... <laughs> <laughs> about um, Scooby Doo's timeline. So let's get on to the let's go on to the cardboard box one. Let Marissa. Mm-hmm. Here's the big question. Okay. Did you enjoy the cardboard box? I did, and I did not. (laughs) So I I think it's a great little story, and it's bare bones, but I really think it would be worthwhile to flesh out a lot more than it is, which I know is like an impossible request because it's such a short story. It's very short, isn't it? Stories are really quite short, and I understand that but i also think it really does need a lot more development 
Um, just in terms of like returning to some of the characters, they never return to Susan. They never no. really explain what her feelings are given the situation when she's lost family. And we spend this really strange amount of time with the killer at the end that is really disturbing. Um, but there's so many little parts of it that I just adore, like Holmes and Watson going for lunch in the middle of this very gory murder investigation. My favorite part of this entire yeah. story, actually. Mm-hmm. Is they, they're they like mid-investigation and they go get day drunk and talk about Paganini. Mm-hmm. They get drunk in the afternoon. They drink a whole bottle of wine together and yeah. just like, nerd, 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 and you're like, guys. If that was me, and, it, and it's, it's it's supposed to be August, I'd be in a hammock for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, true. Like, they're complaining about the heat at the start of this thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> did, you th- did you enjoy it, Sarah? I, I'm similar. So Marissa and I talked about this a little bit beforehand, where my memories of the story are one it's kind of a favorite and then i read it and i can't get over how disturbed i was um by stuff that i feel like i just did not remember clearly and so it's a great setup and has Mm -hmm. this great little sort of just like nasty goriness to it and then you get into this like testimonial of this murderer and it was profoundly disturbing to read i think I I, i would imagine it was profoundly disturbing for people to read then but like sort of in a modern context, I'm just like, uh, uh, get me out of this. I don't want to like listen to this guy talk anymore or read his words. Um, yeah, so it, it, yeah. It, interesting. Um, thrilling, I, I just kept thinking, yeah, this is very nice that you're going through all what he's done and everything. What was his wife like? Because he just doesn't bother talking right. about the victim at all. Yeah, he, and yeah. he's on and on and on about him. Well, this is also, the story has the only Sarah in the canon. <laughs> Okay. And apparently she is nasty. <laughs> um, but we hear all about how much this guy hates this woman. And then she's like living. They could have stopped by her house. Yeah. And we never hear her side of things or her perspective or like any of the grief of the sisters about the fact that the other sister got murdered and her ear was mailed, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I think like the weight of where the story goes makes it more disturbing than sort of on its face it should be there's also the issue um that the fact that i i genuinely think they they try to make him sympathetic you know when he certainly when he says please don't let please don't leave me here on my own mm. right because his nightmares are so bad and when he arrests him he's got his head in his hands and what have you yeah oh poor little jim poor guy who <laughs> right. you know and was like a violent beheaded somebody with an oar yeah and the most disturbing part to me really was that part where he is describing why he murdered his wife because she's sympathetic to her lover and she cries out and she calls his name and that's why he kills her not because he had planned to kill her but because she shows this affection for the person who is being murdered next to her so what else is she going to say right hello jim oh oh oh, oh, there goes oh how nice of you to kill this guy for me yeah you know like so how have you been? You got arrested a week off then. But, you know, <laughs> what else are you going to say? Yeah. I, 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 found, I found that really, really strange. I, I, one of my favourite things about, about the cardboard box is actually the title because, I said this on Twitter before, it's because it sounds like the dullest story ever written. It's about a cardboard box. Whereas the Sussex Vampire sounds amazing. Right. <laughs> and it's about a spoiled child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. And I will um, say that I, I do love the 
imagery of these two severed ears in a box. I love horror and I love the the lineup to goriness in the story, although I don't really find the story as sensational as Watson seems to think it is. No. But I I do love the idea of the horror of it all. I just don't think it's totally executed as well as it could be. Yeah. Well, we were, I, I, this is something we were talking about when we aired The Speckled Band, um, which is one that you sort of think is being, it's very gothic, it's kind of heightened, it's very melodramatic and scary. Um, and the horror in The Speckled Band is very domestic. It's all about this father figure kind of exerting control over these women that he's like meant to care for. And so I feel like it's the, the horror, like what's horrifying about this is not the the grisly body parts themselves. It's the situation in this man being horrifically violent and then sort of getting the space to tell his story. Like that's what's yeah. horrific. Mm-hmm. So that, that's interesting. Yeah. Like it, it plays with horror as a genre, but not in the way that you think based on, you know, when you're like, this is the story with the ears in a box. Yeah. Cause I think it's, it's more, um, because the Speckle Band, which of course everybody loves, it, is um, I mean, it's it's so cartoon gothic. I mean, even his name's got the word grim in it. Grim. I mean, he might as well just run in the show. Please, please let Doctor Baddy so in. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello, Mister Holmes. My name is the Murderer. No, can you <laughs> please? You know, that's it's not really going to. But but this one, I just think because it's so prosaic up until yeah. it gets incredibly vicious with the ears and uh, we, we're talking about the photo the, the drawings I love the drawings that he, he basically puts mm-hmm. him on a plank of wood across his lap I know and he's got and his little his summer hat, hat on yeah in his little suit yeah his little it's so hat. funny yeah and I will say and he, too because he's not put off at all he doesn't think this is grim in the slightest Mm-mm. no I think Which, I think end... this is quite strange it's a famous story for being moved around obviously it yes. was due to come out where we put it um but uh, obviously it was it was held back for a while and i, I was reading leslie Klinger's notes up on this and he, obviously i just thought he's done that because he thinks it's too grim bearing in mind that it is serialized you, you know you're not always guarantee who's going to read this is going to get in people's heads or etc even though the victorian editor was, was famously gothic you know dorian gray and things like that which is a huge horror story and i try to adore mm-hmm. but um so he held it back a bit. But Leslie Klinger says there's also there might be a slight chance that Mary is actually committing adultery. And that might be equally as shocking to the Victorian audience. Interesting. As... There is that one moment when she calls Watson James. Oh, sorry. No, I'm thinking. Uh, other Mary. Yeah. Other Mary. There is oh, no, sort of Mary, coincidentally yeah. a Mary in here. Yeah. Um, that's, although that is coming in the Marys. next story. Yeah. There's another one. There's another one in yellow face as well. Grant Monroe becomes Jack. Oh, gosh. And then becomes Grant again. Right. You know, well, we just did Resident Patient not that long ago, which is the story in which the mind reading scene has been sort of cut and paste between stories. And that was one we weren't really expecting because when we read that, I have multiple editions of the collected Sherlock Holmes. And so I would be going between one edition of the Resident Patient to the next to the next. And they were all different. And I wasn't expecting that. So that is where we uncovered this strange um, mishap with the the mind reading scene that gets moved around so much. I, I love the idea though, as as a, as a, as a as supposedly a writer myself and a very lazy one at that, that he'd just gone, okay, the first two thousand words, that's done. 
now right. the story. Yeah. I mean, it really is just, he just airlifted it yeah, every from one story to the next. It's word yeah. for word, isn't it? She just drops it back in again. I've, I've got to say that one thing I really like about, about this, the, the, the memoirs, um, first two stories, the intros are just great. Absolutely great. I love the Silver Blaze introduction. I've made I've made yeah. it one day at Watson. Uh, and this one is just so good it's, he did it twice. It's one of my favorite scenes, maybe. Yeah. Just like totally removed from everything else in the story, maybe in the canon. It's this little yeah. moment with their conversation. I love it so much. And you can't get more Watson than in those in that scene as well. Right. He's Nigel Bruce Watson at that point. I don't understand it home, you know. <laughs> I, I just think it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And where I think also with Silver Blaze, where he does, the, he shows off about the, um, uh, we're going at a good rate within 53 and one half miles per hour. And I've been looking at the quarter. Hey, he's back. But this one is right. Let's go straight to mind reading for this one. Right. And I, I just think, and also I really like the fact you can tell it's cut and paste because he literally says, all right, it's enough of that story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <you'll> be <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Let's go straight to oh, I've got this um, telegram, which we, I haven't mentioned all morning, which is sitting here, which involves human ears. Um, yeah. And Jim Watson going, wonder, yes, thank God, the ears. I was bored. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if Conan Doyle just had like a file of these little scenes between Holmes and Watson that he used to kind of like just put into a story where it fit, like, you know, examining mm-hmm. someone's hat and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, yeah deductions, yeah. Yeah. They even say that in the BBC story uh, version, don't they? When um, when um, Benelux Cucumber, as he's known in this show, um, <laughs> will um, uh, Mycroft says to him, "Okay, let's do deductions." I said, "There's no, you know, not, we're not going to show off. We're just going to go right. Let's just do this. Then tell me about him." And, and they do it that way. But I think this is just this is just the greatest one. I think it's just famous on its own. It's arguably actually more famous than the story itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. I I do think the the ears resonate quite a bit. Like I remember yeah. the ears, but I don't. Re- I did not remember the plot to this one really at no. all. No, I, yeah. Other than there's some ears and some sisters, and of course salt. I remember <laughs> yeah. the salt for some reason. I don't know why. And, it's just um, a really. You can just really picture what that looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact um, Lestrade says straight away. Um, they're obviously medical students, and he says, "Yeah, but there's no preservative, preservative fluid on this whatsoever." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, it's medical students." Well, no, he's just <laughs> said <laughs> they're bad medical uh, students. Yeah, he's just said, like you know, let's let's ignore all the embalming material and mm-hmm. go for salt here. So no, it's definitely them. Um, have you? I assume you've both seen the Jeremy Brett version. Oh yes. Because yeah. I I watched it and I was slightly baffled with it all the way through. For a start, it's a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. When this is in August, yeah, sweltering. Uh, in fact, yeah. Now I'm just thinking about um, Alec and um, Mary. I'm from Liverpool, where they met <laughs> their end. I know New Brighton well. One thing you do not do is take a boat out onto the River Mersey in December. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm yeah, not well, quite sure. Conan Doyle sure. really has a penchant for writing about. Areas that he is not quite familiar with. Absolutely no idea where anywhere is. <laughs> it's yeah, really it's a- funny. Anytime he's trying to write about the United States, it's always a swing and a miss, but particularly like the West, mm-hmm. where he was dead convinced the Rocky Mountains were in California a yeah. couple stories ago. It's yeah. like, I don't You've never researched anything in your life, man. Isn't, no, um, 
Isn't somebody from Topeka as well? Yeah. So the, the desert in a study in Scarlet covers like from Arizona to Montana. Wow. There's not a desert there. That's a, the <laughs> it's just famous, this massive desert everybody's missed. The famous deserts of Montana. <laughs> Bit cold, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, just showing off my American state knowledge there, everyone. Have you all got it that? It's cold. So my brother lives in Montana. It was negative okay. 20 Fahrenheit this morning. Lovely. Uh, have you seen the Stephen Fry Across America documentary from a few years ago? Mm-hmm. No. He, he interviews, what's his name? The man who married, um, who married Jane Fonda, Ted Turner. Is that his name? I don't, I don't know. know. He's just Turner Media. Anyway, he's, he's, this huge, yeah. he's this huge magnet. And uh, he's, he's a really, really snotty man. And he said, uh, <laughs> he, so Stephen Fry goes to visit him and he says, you know, what a, and so that's a beautiful visit. Look about all those hills over there. And he says, yeah, they're not hills. So like, what are they called? They're, they're mountains. And he just glares at them and then they walk into his house. That's my my, my only pictorial view of Montana. But, yeah, he's um he's got um, he's there's a little thing as well, if Jim's a sailor. So New Brighton is the other right. side of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely sure how he gets to New Brighton. You don't you can't follow somebody to New Brighton because you've got to cross a river first. And uh, mm. I suppose the train could have taken him there, but um, I just found that very strange. Why? In, in, in fact, the Jerry Brett version, there's just so many things which I don't understand. So the the, the section where Holmes says someone's crossed out the letter I in Croydon, they've misspelt it with an I and put it as a Y. And he, obviously he thinks straight away a medical student would know how to spell Croydon, but if they lived there for three years. So they change it to Camberwell? Hmm. Huh. I just didn't get that at all. Yeah, that's interesting. Where well, is well in relation to Croydon? It's not too far away. It's near sort of Peckhamish, around there. So I'd say it's about six miles or so, six miles or so north of, of where Croydon is. Hmm. So it's just an arbitrary. We're just gonna yeah. Let's, okay. let's, let's pick something reason. without the letter I in it, and then. What's wrong with Croydon? I just and um, they did lots of other things as well. Like they um, they really pushed the um, the, the, the student, mm-hmm. um, and they made part of it in France. Really strange. It's the, the hard hmm. thing. That's unusual because the Granada Holmes stories are often so consistent and are such a stickler to the original stories. Like they often are very loyal. Yeah, word for word, mostly word for word. Right. I, um, I I put this out on Twitter a, a few weeks ago. I've um, uh, a friend, Paul Edwards, actually who did the the, the blue cardboard cover with us. He, I, we, we I do a monthly call with him and some of our male schoolmates, and um, he said, "Did you realise that uh, the Red Headed League was filmed? Parts of it was filmed in the school we were at at the time." Oh, really? Was, uh, really? So when Holmes and uh, Watson go to the concert, uh-huh. um. To the Sirisati, where they go to the Sirisati conference. That's my school hall. That's so it, cool. That's cool. Yeah, because which I didn't know. They must have done it on a Sunday because it was it was recorded while I was at school. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where they're, they're queuing up for the bank outside, and that's outside. But it's, it, my school looks very, very sort of. Um, but it is a Victorian building. It was opened in 1825, but and it looks really, really sort of magisterial and posh, and it was <laughs> feral inside. Absolutely, it's, it's now the Paul McCartney fame school. In Liverpool, <laughs> Liverpool Institute Performing Arts. Okay. So that um, hall there, where there's lots of footage of McCartney being on stage. That's the hall where uh, 
when they filmed that. So I, I didn't really watch much of the Brett, the Brett stuff at the time, but they do it in such a well, but I couldn't even, I wouldn't have been able to tell it was my school. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was all, all it's really, really tight. It's basically just so they didn't get the graffiti and <laughs> the backgrounds and crumbling masonry for the afterwards <laughs> You know, I, I've got a similar story, completely off topic to the, you know, the, this story we're talking about. Um, the BBC Sherlock, the original pilot, was filmed partly in Swansea. Um, and I was, um, it was filmed at the, uh, the scenes in like the Italian restaurant were filmed in a pub on Wine Street, which is like the nightlife capital. Really? I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, it was the original pilot that they went, went back and refilmed it all when the um, series commissioned. As well as on the DVDs, like okay. how long or something, 45 minutes. Uh, I was in the pub next door when they were filming it. And one of my friends oh. was like, Oh, they're filming a Sherlock Holmes next door. You didn't get in. You could no, have well, gone through the, the background. The BBC don't really let you into film sets, you know. When it's, uh... <laughs> you could have said that you're the producer of this show. And... I, I could have, yeah, yeah, yeah. But apart from the fact that he was, you know. Hello, John, come in. We'll give you a few lines if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. I think we better return to the story then before I start yeah, yeah. my school days and Jeremy Brett. But I, I just thought that was unusual. That it's one of the greatest plot points about the Croydon with an eye. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a pivotal little detail. Yeah, and hmm. uh, I just thought that was a, was a really strange way, way to do it. Um, what do we think of Susan Cushing, the elder? Uh-huh. I think she's I delightfully, mean... delightfully snotty. Yes, yeah. I'm sort of predisposed to want to like all of the women in homes yeah because people don't like them um but i think she's like she's an interesting little character and again like i feel bad that at by the end of it we zoom out and we don't get to return to her Mm -hmm. um but she is a little like i really like that scene where holmes is peering at her ear yeah i love that and she's just being like why are you here get out of here there are these medical (laughs) students and i'm this old lady and leave me alone Mm -hmm. um yeah, it is a, a delightful change from what Sarah and I have seen so far in the women, which has been really few and far between so far, which has been surprising. But we've really only come across maybe three prominent women so far in our coverage. Are they all called Violet? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> we've had three H's we in a row. It, we discussed this on the last show. Yeah, no, we had um, Helen, Hattie. Hattie. And something else that starts with it. Hilda. Hilda. Hilda is in um, oh, that's the second up. stain. Yes. So, yeah, but they're, they're all quite young. Hilda Javoli, hope, yeah. Yeah. And Susan is quite a different breed of character here. Different mm-hmm. sort of situation that she's in. I like the fact that she's... She... Yeah, I like the fact that she's rude to Lestrade and then is equally rude to... The home bloody course, but it's completely justified. She's just yeah. not seeing oh, yeah, for sure. who is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's she. She's had this creepy thing happen to her, and then these men are in her house asking her questions about it. Yeah, being very... basically prodding her shoulder as they talk to her. Yeah, you staring at her ear. She's like, "Leave me alone! Stop yeah. looking at my ear." Yeah, are you going to cut my ear off now? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've seen that one before somewhere. But, yeah, I just think that that was a—it's a really, really weird. I mean, it's—I really like the fact that Conan Doyle makes a point of saying um, after he'd had done the ear stuff, 
and then the ear questions he says then he was sweetness and light again he was all very uh, my, my yeah, dear and all right. that sort of stuff he also can we talk about the fact that holmes has conveniently written a monograph on ears on ears yes we've all done that sarah come on don't be you know, like as you do yeah here's my mod which that's the sort of thing that i feel like he could have been like yeah yeah i've written a monograph on ears and watson having never read it is like Sure, whatever. Sure. I'll write that down. Of course you did. Yeah, exactly. Of you did. <laughs> Again, as, as we said with Silver Blaze as well, about the uh, the quarter mile posts and Watson right. makes out that it's dead impressed when you can just tell them Watson's gone. Yeah, that, that yeah. seems about He's right. Like, I mean, that, that, that seems tracks. legit. So fine. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. There's it nothing you can tell him. me at this point that I'm surprised by. So sure, yeah, a monograph on ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. in mind, you did read my mind this morning. So no, <laughs> exactly, that, that, we, that can be clubbed together. Right? It's um, I, I, I do quite like Sarah Cushing for that reason, and I, I'll be honest, I'm just relieved her name is not Violet, and she's very pretty mm-hmm. and brave. Which mm-hmm. is um, well, for a start, I think Watson doesn't fall in love with her, so there's a first no. there. No, yeah, for a second, is a... For a, you know, it's it's been a while. And, and while we're here, John, real romancer. <laughs> Every single every yeah. client that he encounters, any attractive client that he Watson has reigned in his libido in this story. <laughs> and and all, all it took was an amputation. That's all it took just to calm him down. <laughs> a double amputation. Uh, we might as well look at Watson watch then. Does he do anything? There is one really interesting moment that I think Sarah and I were both really intrigued by. I personally get really excited about whenever this particular trait of Watson crops up in the stories. But there's a moment when he says a vague thrill ran through him. Yes. Talking about, you know, the, the goriness of the situation and the brutality of it. And I think it's always, it's fascinating to me when Watson, who is supposedly this everyday man gets really excited about the macabre and the criminal because he really like that is the reason why watson is so appealing i think is that he appears to be this very outwardly normal upstanding middle class man but then really just absolutely revels in the horror of criminality and it's like this weird little current that lives within his um you know his personality that is why I think he and Holmes get on so well because it's. He also disguises really it as well. Desire, yeah. He disguises it because he says, um, what, "Do you think you can survive this heat, Watson?" And run down to 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 Croydon with me. Yeah, oh, as well. Might <laughs> not. Yeah. Something to do. <laughs> exactly. Let's yeah. go through Camberwell on the way through and just see if that's any <laughs> if that's more gothic. <laughs> for any reason at all. Yeah, I, that's I, a really I, good point. I mean, he does very little in the story other than follow Holmes around, but. He is into it. He's having it yeah. time. Yeah. I, th- I think the next story, though, the other face, I think we, we get, we got, we actually get some proper Watson stuff going on <laughs> because he sort of wins just by not doing anything. Right. He gets the better of homes, which I quite like. I must admit, although the yellow face is just weird. I feel sorry for Paul doing the next one. That's uh, just a really weird story. A wider Watson watch point as well. Watson, again, doesn't have any money in this uh yeah, he's no, right. and that's really interesting for a doctor. Yeah, yeah. bad with money. Uh huh. Yeah, he cannot but, afford to go on vacation. They suggest later on that he spends all his money on the turf. Yeah, which of course is never referenced at any other point whatsoever. Yeah, that's one of those like 
things people have just sort of adopted as fact. Yeah. I was going to say, am I making this up, or do they lock his checkbook away? Yeah, yeah. Um, that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Holmes has his checkbook locked in a drawer. I think it's Rats referenced in two stories. Yeah. Yeah. So the the bed with money Watson that we meet in A Study in Scarlet is consistent, really, throughout the entire canon. Yeah. Which is always so funny to me that he's staying in a hotel in the Strand and just blowing what has to be very minimal funds by staying in the pricey location. And... And, and of course, yeah. and in this story, yeah. even though he's poor, let's just go and go to a hotel and eat a three-course meal right. with a bottle of wine. How poor are you, John? It <laughs> <laughs> oh, reminds me of me so much. It's the type of thing I do. I've got no money. I'm just going to spend it all on stuff I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Might as well have a good time. Yeah. I, I I'm, think I'm it's a bit... also... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, because I'm, I'm like that with eBay and, and, and vinyl records. So mm-hmm. no matter how poor I am, I'll always find an album to buy somewhere. Right. Um, I also think Watson's role as narrator is really interesting in the story. The way that he introduces it, saying that, you know, I wasn't really sure if I should tell this story because of its sensational elements. And I don't want to sensationalize too much, but it really can't be avoided in this story. And I really think that you know, I said earlier that this story doesn't really read as sensational as I think Watson thinks it is. Yeah. And I think it's really because of Watson's very measured uh, narration and the mm, voice that's with a good word. which he tells it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it easily could be. I mean, it's got all the plot points of a sensation novel. It's gory. It's got, you know, cheating and romance and murder. Ears. 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 Yeah. Severed body parts. Midday drinking. I mean. So it it very easily could be a a Wilkie Collins or... And and it's maritime as well. And maritime stories are big, big, big stories around then. I mean, he goes Mm -hmm. back to the Gloria Scott later on, doesn't he? uh, Yeah, which that one's also quite... Since I mean, there's the blood, brains splattering across. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And the suggestion that his friend has just shot him. I think he's just taken, he says something like, I think he's just taken care of him. Like they went yeah. shooting one day, he just shot him and left him there. Mm-hmm. That's equally grim as well. But I like the fact, I love those intros that Watson does when it says, you know, oh, it's, it's, it was too sensationalist, but, you know, maybe, maybe we can, because everyone's going, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, here we go. There's no Sussex yeah. vampire here. No, <laughs> no, this is a, this is a proper, <laughs> this is a proper dramatic story you've got going on. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in the stride. Yeah, he's yeah. not at top, in his top form in this story. He doesn't learn. He never, ever learns. No. No, but he and Holmes are a little bit more chummy. Yeah, so we're, you know, stories. we're very early, all things considered, in their friendship. And yeah. in the stories that we've done recently, Holmes and Lestrade are, like, at each other's throats. Yeah. And they are yeah. very antagonistic. So they're getting along a little better. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, think, I think they like each other. Yeah, they're like I clearly, they you know. They do. At some point, they learn to like each other. Yeah. Versus <laughs> like uh, the Noble Bachelor where they like have a little throwdown and Lestrade throws a bunch of wet laundry in their room and it's like, Sherlock Holmes, you're an idiot and stomps out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, wish, I wish they'd so. done that now. <laughs> He'll try that and throws a big load of clothes in his face. <laughs> I'm going back to mother. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, yeah. Um, I'm just always a bit wary when they sound like when if Lestrade stands up and says, 
I know who this is. This is 100% solved. Don't you worry about it at all. Then, you know, it's like, it's like the old nothing can go wrong adage. Anyone who stands up says nothing can go wrong, they're just asking for it. Um, but I think that may be because Holmes says that it's such an easy case for him to work out, which, of course, it isn't. He's showing off. Right. Um, that he says, Lestrade, it's all yours. You take all the credit for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he's at the end is right. Like this one was not worth my time. So you just go deal yeah. with it because this is a minnow. It isn't that impressive. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just Watson, I, I, I was... Watson also describes Lestrade as ferret-like. Ferret-like, yeah, he's rat-like in another one as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. just like I thought you guys were pals. He's also described as being quite dapper as well, isn't he? Yeah. He's dapper, well-dressed, but ferret-like, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he looks him. quite nice in the illustrations, which I was kind of surprised yeah. by. Yeah. He just looks like a, you know, regular and nice, kind of almost handsome man. Because he's not pompous, is he? Because you think he's going to be pompous because he's always like, no, Holmes, you're wrong. I've got the mm-hmm. answer this time. And I have the right. name of the murderer. You don't. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I can ask you both about the deduction that he gets, he knows the murderer by looking at the photo. Mm, I get that he's like, you know, there's there's three sisters. There's a man over the next one as well. It looks like they're close. He's in Liverpool. I don't know why they know he's in Liverpool, but um, because fact fans, the Liber building was not built in 1911, which is the most important building in Liverpool. Um, But he seems to know he's in Liverpool (laughs) and straight away, right, that's the murderer. Isn't that a bit of a jump? I mean, yes, but not so, if you're looking at like percentage rates of domestic violence. That's true. <laughs> and spousal that true, abuse. Yeah. They're like, yeah, this guy's a kind of a dirtbag husband. Yeah, and I then mean, Holmes is like, yeah, that he did it. Right. Even without the ears, the moment that they bring Jim up, it's sort of like, well, he did it. Obviously, I don't cold. know how he did it, but he did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely him. And I mean, then, you of hear, course, they like, pull the big one. What they say is like we don't like him very much and he's a drinker. And it's like, oh, well. That's what I was going to say. The second they say drink. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly guilty. Anyone who's ever drank. And by the way, we should talk about this at some point, John. Holmes and Watson can put the stuff away. As we've already seen, incidentally, in this story. Right. Well, yeah, you know, Watson's solution to someone having a slight medical malady is give them lots of brandy. Always the same. I've lost my fun. Yeah, have lots of brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should speak to um, to Watson about about listener idea. I hurt my rib today. I got tripped while running, and my rib is. I mean, a brandy small. might make it. I think maybe a bottle. Stop thinking about it anyway. Yeah. I mean, work would be interesting tomorrow if I tried that. <laughs> Still slurring on my Zoom call tomorrow morning with my boss. Um, I, I I do think it's there's a bit of a worry here, and I want to go back to something that no one will possibly know what this means. But it, I, I like the arches, the BBC Four radio show the longest running soap opera in the world um because i'm the sort of person who shouldn't like the arches john's face is pulling some john's appalled at the very idea that but i do quite like the arches and there's a story a few years ago where a man was made redundant from his job lost his job and he had a few drinks in the afternoon and some money went missing and immediately it was him mm-hmm. immediately and i was sort of he's been made redundant, which isn't his fault he's unemployed which isn't his fault his wife is not the nicest person in the world, and you've made him the bad person in all this. 
And I did think about um, Paul. I think it may be because it's because I'm defending him because he lives in Liverpool. That's probably part of it. And I'm not having anyone. To, I'm, I don't know anyone, by the way, who's ever cut off anyone's ears at New Brighton. <laughs> I want I want that known. I want that cleared. I want that written up in Ripper Cast, please, in the contract. But, um, I did think it was a bit of a leap. I think to go from ear to sister to sister, next to man, man is probably drunk, he's probably killed them. And it'd be mm-hmm. right. I thought it was a bit... And I love the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I do. I mean, I think what Marissa said earlier where... I, I want the story to be twice as long yeah. as it is because there's a lot of uh, deductive leaps where you would want some more like backstory and investigating to make those things actually add up. Cause it's like, he's going to get there, but you need some information yeah. to explain right. why. Yeah. It is quite strange. Um, yeah. Although do we have any sympathy at all for Jim? No. If I, mean, I saw I, I, the man I, I, on the street, me, I would run him over with my car. I've got, I've, you're just taking it to the account of the murdery side of his nature. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> there were many I, days I, I, when he didn't, he didn't kill anyone at all. <laughs> I mean, he I, is wronged. I refuse to be defined by the time that <laughs> I murdered somebody. You killed just two murders. and then, No, I mean... Obviously, he's an he's an evil character based on that. But I just want to say that he is wronged in the story. Obviously, he's, I'm, not, I'm not praising him for what he's done or anything like that. But um, I find it quite strange that I just I said before I just said that kind of dog gives him pages and pages to explain himself and to and to show pity for him. And yeah, and you know, he says something like, "You know, you can't punish me, but I haven't been punished enough." Sometimes it's his face, but more often it's hers. Mm-hmm. What he thinks about I, his final act. I'd have more sympathy if he was a nice guy prior to this, and he just, you know, but he's described as a nasty piece of work from the start. He's described yeah. as yeah. Highland. I mean, even if you're trying to think, like he is, you know, it, it does seem that his wife is having an, an affair or something, yeah. a little fishy's going on there. But it sounds like he's a nasty drunk who beats her up. Right. Yeah. So, like, I would yeah. go get the hell out of that situation. <laughs> And stay with my sister yeah, for long yeah. periods of time, like yeah. Well, does, doesn't he stop drinking then when I they think, met? Yes, yeah. yeah it's he, a little hard, yeah. And then stopped. their relationship gets rocky, and then he starts drinking because the more, and so things stopped. get worse yeah. and worse and worse. Um, but of course, we only hear his point of view. You know, yeah. where he's defending why he did what he did. We don't get to hear at all from his victim, either of his victims, and we don't hear from the other sister. Who's like comatose or whatever? Brain fever, something. Oh, <laughs> good old brain, brain fever. fever. Yeah. yeah. You can't beat brain fever from just getting. <laughs> Where she would probably have a very different story than yeah. the how this guy kind of justifies what happened. So well, she loves him, according to. That's him. what he says. Yeah. That's all right, my lass. He says. I was trying to work out where he's from. He sounds like, well, and in the, in the Bell Cools BBC version, he's played by Kevin Waitley from Morse. So, uh-huh. so he's from the Northeast, mm-hmm. um, which, which would explain him saying, my lass. But, um, yeah, I just, I just find it strange that he just tries to paint him as nice as possible. And it was the evil middle sister who's responsible for all this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's lazy. Mm. If you ask me, but then again, I'm predisposed because 
she's the only Sarah in the canon. I'm like, <laughs> see, get on, Sarah. So, yeah, so, Sarah. Be mean, it, Sarah. This is about prejudice. You've got the Sarah defense. I've got, <laughs> I've got your fancy lives in Liverpool, but I want to know where. There you go. <laughs> Um, he might, might have been around my relatives. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, he clearly needs to calm down, calm down, calm down. Right, let's edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be done. It had to be done. Thank you. I was expecting that at some point. I think there's another little reference, by the way. I think um, in the Priory School, I think, is it Reuben Hayes? I think he says that the child has been seen in Liverpool. And that's the only thing I've got. I might as well talk about Liverpool. It's my show. Um, <laughs> And also, I want it known that Heathcliff, Heathcliff is from Liverpool, from Wuthering Heights. Yes. Well, at least he's picked up in Liverpool. He's found on the streets of Liverpool. We don't know where now. he's from. No. And he's so pretty he could be like, from well. anywhere. And then, well, it's interesting because uh, this, I mean, I could talk about Wuthering Heights for hours, but it's interesting because Liverpool, in the time period when they pick up Heathcliff, which would have been the late 18th century, mid yeah. to late 18th century, it was a huge slave trade port. Yeah. So Heathcliff could be from literally anywhere yes. in the world. Yeah, doesn't she make out that he's basically <laughs> half wolf like in many ways? He's just hair and mud and what have you. He's a bit, he's a bit like um, Caliban, isn't he? He's a bit sort of. Yeah. yeah he's a bit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, final question, and it's the big one. And we've changed the rules on this. You're not allowed to say the Mazaran Stone. You both like, to some degree, the cardboard box. I do have two questions. I just thought of another one. Um, what is your least favourite? Uh, the one with the monkey guy. The creeping man. The creeping man. That story yeah. is just... its That's it's a first. Yeah, we've, never, we've never had that one come in. It's um, abominably ridiculous. <laughs> monkey pheromones or whatever. Yeah. I mean, we've all climbed on the side of the building. And- yeah. Scared the dog. Marissa? You know, it's hard for me because I have not read a lot of these stories since high school or college. So I'm remembering them as I go through and we talk about them. And so what I'm going to say is going to be probably a controversial opinion, but it's not just because of the content of the story, but because... Please don't say the Bruce Parsons of plans. No, Please don't say the Bruce Parsons It's not even a story. It's a novella. And it is The Sign of Four, (laughs) um, which is actually one of my least favorite ones, which is probably because I have read it so many times in the past couple of years. And it is truly abominably racist in the very premise of the story (laughs) um and there are a lot of things i do like about it but i think i am so run down on it because i have read it maybe i don't know as many times in the past five years or so which i like the story but it's too i mean i'm i'm quite the same way with the study in scarlet because there's no sherlock (laughs) in it for 300 pages right yeah Yeah. it seems that way totally come on do deductions Right. Well, do your party really, trick. Um, it's a very that's a very messy mystery as well, too, yeah. because it doesn't really do the job of setting up the mystery. No, in a way that the it's like not really a mystery. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. But I'm sure I will have a different opinion by the time Sarah and I make our way through all the short stories because there's so many and they all just tend to blur together if you haven't read them for a long time. Well, I think that that's one of the things I really like about this podcast because there's the stories I really, really like, 
and and then someone but i've never ever ever spoke to them about the stories and mm. when we had rob Nunn on he said by the way the veil lodge is terrible because all he does is go to the house and then oh, someone yeah. sends him something there is no drama mm-hmm. whatsoever and now i've sort of got it in my head that i don't like the veil lodge that much but I, which i think is always i think it's clever with the lion's paw and everything but yeah um uh, like you think, all he really does is show up, which is why I'm really looking forward to the yellow face when Holmes does literally nothing. Knocks down a peg a little, yeah. Yeah, he just he just walks around and does it like that. The, the other thing we did on the last show, John, if you remember, we did we we were doing a correlation map, aren't we? Between is the city closer um, safer than the country? <laughs> this is the grisliest murder, I'd say, and it's very very city. Mm-hmm. It's not London. No, but it is the capital of England, I'm sorry. Mercy or city. It's very, very industrial. Uh, true. We yeah, it's certainly not like a big world. country house. No, no, no. It's, it's not, you know, miles away from the station, there's only one horse or something like that, and two members of staff with, with a, a rabid dog running around the place, like, uh, like the Copper Peaches is. But, uh, right. Yeah, and they're, they're not safe, even though they're in the most remote place ever, in the middle of the River Mersey or Irish Sea, whichever which direction they went in. But uh, we're keeping our, our, um, then we've got the yellow face to think about next. Sorry, I'm just it's in my head, the yellow face. There's <laughs> a lot, yeah, in that one. Yeah, yeah nothing, nothing happened in this house in the country. Fine, what a great story. Lovely. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Plus, plus a bit of racism. So thank you very much for coming on. Can we ask so, where, where people can find your podcast and what you're doing next? even though you've also told us. Sure. Yeah, so Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was really fun. It was a good story to talk about and a fun one to revisit. We want you to, uh, if, you, if you'd like to come on and discuss one of the ones you hate, we're not doing a study. In- <laughs> Actually, we probably will do the novels at some point. John and I are already mm-hmm. talking about it, but we'll definitely bring you on for that. Special episodes. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're on I'll the red button. No, I am so, we have a while until the sign of four, oh. but I just, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to okay. talk about it. In an hour, mm-hmm. without without and I'm putting okay, off so thinking our, about it. Yeah, um, well, we, we might bring you back for the three gables. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you want to shout at some casual Victorian, not, not even casual racism, I would not call that casual. A full on downright. The speckled band is casual. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Well, oh, yeah. that's another law, of course, we've discussed in the past: is that if gypsies are mentioned, the gypsies are innocent. They're always the MacGuffin, always, oh, it must right. be them. And it never is. And you don't even meet a gypsy in the entire canon. Mm-mm. So that's no, something like that. Yeah, this is like one, again, there's one Sarah. There's also like one Jew in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is like the two things I'm looking at. Is right. that Holmes bought his violin from a Jewish Oh, of course, the Jew, yeah. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really yeah. like that term very much. I, I had a little frown at that one I saw it the other day. No, there's definitely a healthy dose of anti-Semitism. Yeah, even if it's not also. very, um, yeah, you know, but you're like, oh, there's, it's there's me hanging out in there. I I'm will be really broker. interested when we get to oh, um, what's the six Napoleons? That's the one yeah. with the horrid Italian family. Right, yeah. that will be interesting. See how that goes. Yeah, we're off on a tangent, but yes, sorry, um, I was gonna say. 
our website and all of our information. Yeah, go ahead. Um, our website is howeverimprobablepodcast.com. So you can find basically everything on there, all of our links to our episodes, our further reading, everything that we throw up on there. But you can also find our podcast on basically any podcatcher that you listen to. And Sarah, what is our Twitter handle? Yeah, we're on Twitter and Insta at, at improbablepod. Um, and we're pretty funny on Twitter, if I do say so myself. So <laughs> you should follow us and chat. And we're, Marissa and I are also individually both on Twitter. And we like mm-hmm. to talk about horror and detective fiction and all sorts of stuff. So, both yeah. Mostly. Yes. Fantastic. I'd also like to add that in the closing titles, I say that we are on Twitter at Adler to Ambly. We're not John. We are at Adler 2. I recorded the <laughs> intro before I set up the Twitter account. <laughs> And forgot to do that. So we're at Adler too, but I'm sure you can find us based on that. The show logo is the other side. For the last, for the last how um, fifteen months, we've had the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that makes it more of a sort of mystery in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, yeah, you've got to deduce, uncover it that you put the wrong information. In what, what I've done is I've, I've taken a photo of myself holding the correct sign with the correct avatar on. In case anyone wants to come back and see what the actual web address is, we're at Adler Two, not Adler, Adler Two. Sorry, Adler, Adler, Adler Two, not Adler Two. There you go. So, can I thank you both very much for coming on, and uh, we will see you when we come to do a story you both hate. Okay, thank great. you very much. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. This is so it was fun. really fun. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>